0: Thirteen, and I can do it," replied Inventor Cornell. He laid a large premium on his confidence in his idea, promising that if his machine would not work, he would ask no money for it. But if it succeeded, he was to be well paid. Smith agreed to these terms, and Cornell went to a work. In ten days, the machine was built and ready for trial. A yoke of oxen was attached to it. Three men managed it, and in the first five minutes, it had laid one hundred feet of pipe and covered it with earth. It was a decided success. Mr. Smith had contracted to allay the pipe for $100 a mile. A short calculation proved to him that, with the aid of Israel Cornell's machine, $90 of this would be profit. But the shrewd editor did not feel like risking Cornell's machine in any hands but those of the inventor. He made him a profitable offer if he would go to Baltimore and take charge of the job himself. It would pay better than selling patent plows. Cornell agreed to go, reaching Baltimore. He met Professor Morse. They had never met before. Their future lives were to be closely associated. In the conversation that ensued Morse explained what he proposed to do. An electric wire might either be laid underground or carried through the air. He had decided on the underground system. The wire being coated by an insulating compound and drawn through a pipe. Cornell questioned him closely. Got a clear idea of the scheme. Saw the pipe that was to be used. And expressed doubts of its working. It will work, for it has worked, said Morse. While I have been fighting Congress, inventors in Europe have been experimenting with the telegraphic idea. Short lines have been laid in England and elsewhere, in which the wire is carried in buried pipes. They have been successful. What can be done in Europe can be done in America. What Morse said was a fact. While he had been pushing his telegraph conception in America it had been tried successfully in Europe, but the system adopted there of vibrating needle signals, was so greatly inferior to the Morse system, that it was destined in the future to be almost or quite set aside by the latter, today the Morse system and alphabet are used in much the greater number of the telegraph offices of the world, but to a return to our story, Cornell went to a work, and the pipe, with its interior wire, was laid with much rapidity, not many days had elapsed before 10 miles were underground, the pipe being neatly covered as laid, It reached from Baltimore nearly to the relay house. Here it stopped. For something had gone wrong. Morse tested his wire. It would not work. No trace of an electric current could be got through it. The insulation was evidently imperfect. What was to be done? He would be charged with wasting the public money on an impracticable experiment. Yet if he stopped he might expect a roar of newspaper disapprobation of his whole scheme. He was in a serious dilemma. How should he escape? He sought Cornell and told him of the failure of his experiments the work must be stopped he must try other kinds of pike and new methods of insulation but if the public should suspect failure there would be vials of wrath poured on their devoted heads the public shall not suspect failure leave it to me said cornell he turned to his men the machine was slowly moving forward drawn by a team of eight mules depositing pike as it went a section had just been laid night was at hand hurry up boys cried Cornell, sharely, we must lay another length before we quit, he grasped the handles of his plow-like machine, the driver stirred up the mules to a lively pace, the contrivance went merrily forward, but the cunning pilot knew what he was about, he steered the buried point of the machine against a rock that just protruded from the earth, in an instant there was a shock, a sound of rending wood and iron, a noise of shouting and trampling, and then the line of mules came to a halt but behind them were only the ruins of a machine. That moment's work had converted the pipe-laying contrivance into kindling wood and scrap iron. The public condoled with the inventor. It was so unlucky that his promising progress should be stopped by such an accident. As for Morse and his cunning associate, they smiled quietly to themselves as they went on with their experiments. Another kind of pipe was tried. Still the current would not go through. A year passed by. Experiment after experiment had been made all had proved failures. $23,000 of the money had been spent. Only 7,000 remained. The inventor was on the verge of despair. I am afraid it will never work, said Cornell. It looks bad for the pipe plan. Then let us try the other, said Morse. If the current won't go underground, it may be coaxed to go above ground. The plan suggested was to string the wire upon poles, insulating it from the wood by some non-conductor. A suitable insulator was needed. Cornell devised one, another inventor produced another, Morse approved of the latter, started for New York with it to make arrangements for its manufacture, and on his way met Professor Henry, who knew more about electricity than any other man in the country, Morse showed him the models of the two insulators, and indicated the one he had chosen, Mr. Henry examined them closely, you are mistaken, he said, that one won't work, this is the insulator you need, he want to Cornell's device. In a few words he gave his reasons, Moore saw that he was right, the Cornell insulator was chosen and now the work went forward with great rapidity, the planning of poles, and stringing of wires over a glass insulator at their tops, was an easy and rapid process, and more encouraging still, the thing worked to a charm, there was no trouble now in obtaining signals from the wire, the first public proof of the system was made on May eleventh, 1844, on that day the WIB National Convention, then in session at Baltimore, had nominated Henry Clay for the presidency. The telegraph was being built from the Washington end, and was yet miles distant from Baltimore. The first railroad train from Baltimore carried passengers who were eager to tell the tidings to their Washington friends, but it carried also an agent of Professor Morse, who brought the news to the inventor at the unfinished end of the telegraph. From that point he sent it over the wire to Washington. It was successfully received at the Washington end. And never were human beings more surprised than were the train passengers on alighting at the capital city to find that they brought stale news, and that Clay's nomination was already known throughout Washington. It was the first public proof in America of the powers of the telegraph, and certainly a and convincing one. Before the 24th of May the telegraph line to Baltimore was completed, the tests successfully made, and all was ready for the public exhibition of its marvelous powers. Which had been fixed for that day. Miss Ellsworth, in compliance with the inventor's promise, made her more than a year before, was given the privilege of choosing the first message to go over the magic wires. She selected the appropriate message from scriptures, what hath God wrought. With these significant words began the reign of that marvelous invention which has wrought so wonderfully in binding the ends of the earth together and making one family of mankind. There were difficulties still in the way of the inventor, severe ones his afterlife lay in no bed of roses, his patents were violated, his honor was questioned, even his integrity was assailed, rival companies stole his business, and lawsuits made his life a burden, he won at last, but failed to have the success of his associate, Mr. Cornell, who grew in time very wealthy from his telegraphic enterprises, as regards the Morse system of telegraphy, it may be said in conclusion that over 100 devices have been invented to supersede it, but that it holds its own triumphant over them all. The inventor wrought with his brain to good purpose in those days and nights of mental discipline above the Atlantic waves and on board the good ship Sully, the Monitor and the Emiaryamasi, on the 9th of March, 1862. For the first time in human history, two ironclad ships met in Battle. The occasion was a memorable one, and its story is well worthy of being retold in our cycle of historic events, for centuries, for thousands of years. In truth, wooden vessels had been struggling for the mastery of the seas, with the first shot fired from the turret of the Monitor at the roof-like sides of the Merrimack. In the early morning of the day named, the long reign of wooden war vessels ended, that of iron monarchs of the deep began. England could no more trust to her, wooden walls, for safety, and all the nations of Europe, when the echo of that shot reached their ears, felt that the ancient era of naval construction was at an end. And that the future navies of the world must ride the waves clad in massive armor of steel. On the 8th of March, indeed, this had been shown. On that day the Merrimack steamed down from Norfolk Harbor into Hampton Roads, where lay a fleet of wooden men of war, some of them the largest sailing frigates then in the American Navy. On shore soldiers were encamped, here Union, their Confederate, and the inmates of the camps, the garrison of Fortress Monroe, the crews of the ships at anchor under its guns, all gazed with eager eyes over the open waters of the bay, their interest in the coming contest as intense as Roman audience ever displayed for the life-and-death struggle in the gladiatorial arena. Before them lay mightier amphitheater than that of the Colosseum, and before them was to be fought more notable struggle for life-and-death than ever took place within the walls of mighty Rome. It was in the afternoon of the 8th, about one o'clock, that the long roll sounded in the camps on shore, and the cry resounded from camp to camp. The Merrimack is coming. For several weeks she had been looked for, and preparations made for her reception. The frigates bore a powerful armament of heavy guns, ready to batter her iron-clad sides, and strong hopes were entertained that this modern leviathan would soon cease to trouble the deep. The lesson fixed by fate for that day had not yet been learned. Down the bay she came, looking at a distance like a flood-borne house. Its sides drowned, only its sloping roof visible. The strange-appearing craft moved slowly, accompanied by two small gunboats as tenders. As she came near no signs of life were visible, while her iron sides displayed no evidence of guns. Yet within that threatening monster was a crew of three hundred men, and her armament embraced ten heavy cannon. Hinged lids closed the gun ports, raised only when the guns were thrust forward for firing. As for the men, they were hidden somewhere under that iron roof, to be felt, but not seen. What followed has been told in song and story, it need be repeated here but in epitome. The first assault of the Merrimack was upon the Cumberland, a thirty-gun frigate. Again and again the thirty heavy balls of the frigate rattled upon the impenetrable sides of the iron-clad monster, and bounded off uselessly into the deep. The Merrimack came on at full speed, as heedless of this fusillade as though she was being fired at with peas. As she approached, two heavy balls from her guns tore through the timbers of the Cumberland, They were followed by a stunning blow from her iron beak that opened a gaping wound in the defenseless side of her victim. Then she drew off, leaving her broken beak sticking in the ship's side and began firing broadsides into the helpless frigate, raking her fore and aft with shell and grape. Despite the fact that she had already got her death blow and was rapidly filling with water, never ship was thought more nobly than the doomed Cumberland. With the decks sinking under their feet, the men fought with unflinching courage when the bow guns were underwater, the rear guns were made to do double duty, the captain was called on to surrender, he sternly refused, the last shot was fired from a gun on a level with the waves, then, with sails spread and flags flying, the Cumberland went down, carrying with her nearly one hundred of her crew, the remainder swimming ashore, the water was deep, but the topmost of the doomed vessel still rose above the surface, with its pennant waving in the wind, Four months afterwards that old flag continued to fly, as if to say, the Cumberland sinks, but never surrenders. The Congress, a 50-gun frigate, was next attacked, and handled so severely that her commander ran her ashore, and soon after hoisted the white flag, destruction appearing inevitable. Boats were sent by the enemy to take possession, but the sharp fire from the shore drove them off. Is this in accordance with military law? asked one of the officers in the camp. Since the ship has surrendered, has not the enemy the right to take possession of her? This legal knot was quickly and decisively cut by General Mansfield in an unanswerable decision. I know the DD ship has surrendered, he said, but we haven't. And the firing continued. The Merrimack, not being able to seize her prize, opened fire with hot shot on the Congress and quickly set her on fire. Night was now at hand and the conquering ironclad drew off. The Congress continued to burn. Her loaded guns roaring her requiem one after another as the fire spread along her decks about 1 o'clock her magazine was reached and she blew up with a tremendous explosion the shop being so great as to prostrate many of those on the shore so ended that momentous day it had shown one thing conclusively that wooden walls could no longer rule the wave iron had proved its superiority in naval construction the next day was to behold another novel sight the struggle of iron with iron Morning came, the atmosphere was hazy, only as the mist slowly lifted were the gladiators of that liquid arena successively made visible, here, just above the water, defiantly floated the flag of the sunken Cumberland, there smoked the still burning hell of the Congress, here, up the bay, steamed the Merrimack, with two attendants, the Yorktown and the Patrick Henry, yonder lay the great hell of the steam frigate Minnesota, which had taken some part in the battle of the day before but had unfortunately gone ashore on a mud bank, from which the utmost efforts failed to force her off. Other Union naval vessels were visible in the distance. The Merrimack made her away towards the Minnesota, as towards a certain prey. Her commander felt confident that an hour or two would enable him to reduce this great vessel to the condition of her recent companions. Yet an odd sight met his vision. Alongside the Minnesota floated the strangest-looking craft that human eye had ever gazed upon an insignificant affair it appeared, a cheese box on a raft, it was irreverently designated, the deck, a level expanse of iron, came scarcely above the surface, above it rose a circular turret, capable of being revolved, and with portholes for two great guns, among the largest up to that time used in naval warfare, how this odd contrivance came there so opportunely may be briefly told, it was the conception of John Ericsson, the eminent Swedish engineer, And was being rapidly built in New York while the Merrimack was being plated with thick iron bars in Norfolk. A contest for time took place between these two unlike craft. Spies were in both places to report progress. Fortunately, the monitor was finished a day or two before her competitor. Immediately she steamed away for Hampton Roads. The passage was a severe one. Three days were consumed during which the sea swept repeatedly over the low deck, the men being often half suffocated in their confined quarters the turret alone standing above the water, as they approached Fortress Monroe the sound of cannonading was heard, tarrying but a few minutes at the fort, the monitor, as the salt vessel had been named, approached the Minnesota, and reached her side at a late hour of the night, and now, with the new day, back to the fray came the Merrimack, looking like a giant in comparison with the stwarfish antagonist, as she approached, the little craft glided swiftly in front of her grounded consort like a new David offering battle to a modern Goliath. As if in disdain of this puny antagonist, the Merrimack began an attack on the Minnesota. But when the two 11-inch guns of the monitor opened fire, hurling solid balls of 168 pounds weight against the iron sides of her great opponent, it became at once evident that a new move had opened in the game, and that the Merrimack had no longer the best of the play. The fight that followed was an extraordinary one and was gazed on with intense interest by the throng of spectators who crowded the shores of the bay. The Merrimack had no solid shot, as she had expected only wooden antagonists. Her shells were hurled upon the monitor, but most of them missed their mark, and those that struck failed to do any injury. So small was the object fired at that the great shells, as a rule, whirled uselessly by, and plunged hissing into the waves. The massive solid balls of the monitor were far more effective, Nearly everyone struck the broad sides of the Merrimack, breaking her armor in several places, and shattering the wood backing behind it. Many times the Merrimack tried to arran her small antagonist, and thus to rid herself of the teasing tormentor, but the active, cheese box, slipped agilely out of her way. The monitor in turn tried to disable the screw of her opponent, but without success, unable to do any harm to her dwarfish foe. The Merrimack now, as if in disdain, turned her attention to the Minnesota, hurling shells through her side, in return the frigate poured into her a whole broadside at close range, it was enough, said the captain of the frigate afterwards, to have blown out of the water any wooden ship in the world, it was wasted on the ironclad foe, this change of action did not please the captain of the monitor, he thrust his vessel quickly between the two combatants, and assailed so sharply that the Merrimack steamed away, the monitor followed, Suddenly the fugitive vessel turned, and, like an animal moved by an impulse of fury, rushed head on upon her tormentor, her beak struck the flat iron deck so sharply as to be wrenched by the blow, the great hell seemed for the moment as if it would crowd the low lying vessel bodily beneath the waves, but no such result followed, the monitor glided away unharmed, as she went she sent a ball against the merrimack that seemed to crush in her armored sides, at ten o'clock the monitor steamed away, as if in flight. The Merrimack now prepared to pay attention again to the Minnesota, her captain deeming that he had silenced his tormenting foe. He was mistaken. In half an hour the monitor, having hoisted a new supply of balls into her turret, was back again. And for two hours more the strange battle continued. Then it came to an end. The Merrimack turned and ran away. She had need to. Those on shore saw that she was sagging down at the stern. The battle was over. The turret ironclad had driven her great antagonist from the field and won the victory and thus ended one of the strangest and most notable naval combats in history. During the fight, the monitor had fired 41 shots and been struck 22 times. Her greatest injury was the shattering of her pilot house. Her commander, Lieutenant Worden, was knocked senseless and temporarily blinded by the shock. On board the Merrimack, two men were killed and 19 wounded. Her iron prow was gone. Her armor broken and damaged. Her steam pipe and smokestock randled, The muzzles of two of her guns shot away. While water made its way into her through more than one crevice. Back to Norfolk went the injured Merrimack. Here she was put into the dry dock and hastily repaired. After that had been done, she steamed down to the old fighting ground on two or three occasions and challenged her small antagonist. The monitor did not accept the challenge. If any accident had happened to her the rest of the fleet would have been lost and it was deemed wisest to hold her back for emergencies. On the 10th of May the Confederates marched out of Norfolk. On the 11th the Merrimack was blown up, and only her disabled hell remained as a trophy to the victors. As to her condition and fighting powers, one of the engineers who had charge of the repairs upon her said, a shot from the monitor entered one of her ports, lodged in the backing of the other side, and so shivered her timbers that she never afterwards could be made seaworthy." She could not have been kept afloat for 12 hours, and her officers knew it when they went out and dared the monitor to fight her. It was a case of pure bluff, we didn't hold a single pair. The combat we have recorded was perhaps the most important in the history of naval warfare. It marked a turning point in the construction of the Monarchs of the Deep, by proving that the future battles of the sea must be fought behind iron walls, stealing a locomotive, on a fine day in April, 1862. A passenger train drew out from Marietta, Georgia, bound north. Those were not days of abundant passenger travel in the south, except for those who wore the butternut uniform and carried muskets. But this train was well filled, and at Marietta a score of men in civilian dress had boarded the cars. Soldierly-looking fellows these were too, not the kind that were likely to escape long the clutch of the Confederate conscription. Eight miles north of Marietta the train stopped at the station of Big Shanty with the welcome announcement of ten minutes for breakfast, out from the train, like these from the hive, swarmed the hungry passengers, and made their way with all speed to the lunch counter, followed more deliberately by conductor, engineer, and brakesman. The demands of the lunch counter are of universal potency, few had the hardihood to resist them, that particular train was emptied in the first of its ten minutes of grace, yet breakfast did not seem to appeal to all upon the train. The Marietta group of civilians left the train with the others, but instead of seeking the refreshment room, turned their steps towards the locomotive, no one noticed them, though there was a Confederate camp hard by the station, well filled with raw recruits, and hardly a dozen steps from the engine a sentinel steadily walked his beat, rifle on shoulder, one of the men climbed into the engine, the sentinel paid no heed to him, another slipped in between two cars, and pulled out a coupling pin. The sentinel failed to observe him. A group of others climbed quickly into an open box car. The sentinel looked at them, and walked serenely on. The last man of the party now strode rapidly up the platform, nodded to the one in the locomotive, and swung himself lightly into the cab. The sentinel turned at the end of his beat and walked back, just beginning to wonder what all this meant. Meanwhile famine was being rapidly appeased at the lunch counter again and the not very luxurious display of food was vanishing like a field of wheat before an army of locusts. Suddenly the sharp report of a rifle run with warning sound through the air. The drowsy tenants of the camp sprang to their feet. The conductor hurried out to the platform. He had heard something besides the rifle shot, the grind of wheels on the track, and his eyes opened widely in alarm and astonishment as he saw that the train was broken in two, and half of it running away. The passenger cars stood where he had left them. The locomotive, with three box cars, was flying rapidly up the track. The sentinel, roused to a sense of the situation only when he saw the train in actual flight, had somewhat late given the alarm, the conductor's eyes opened very wide. The engine, under a full head of steam, was driving up the road. The locomotive had been stolen. Out from the refreshment room poured passengers and trainmen, filled with surprise and chagrin what did it mean, what was to be done, there was no other engine within miles, how should these daring thieves ever be overtaken, their capture seemed a forlorn hope, the conductor, wild with alarm and dreading reprimand, started up the track on foot, running as fast as his legs could carry him, a railroad mechanic named Murphy kept him company, to a one with a love of humor it would have been an amusing sight to see two men on foot chasing a locomotive, But just then Conductor Fuller was not troubled about the opinion of men of humor, his one thought was to overtake his runaway locomotive, and he would have crawled after it if no better way appeared. Fortune comes to him who pursues her, not to him who waits her coming. The brace of locomotive chasers had not run down their strength before they were lucky enough to spy a hand car. Standing beside the track, here was a gleam of hope. In a minute or two they had lifted it upon the rails, springing within it. They applied themselves to the levers. And away they went at a more promising rate of speed. For a mile or two all went on swimmingly. Then sudden disaster came. The car struck a broken rail and was hurled headlong from the track, sending its occupants flying into the muddy roadside ditch. This was enough to discourage anybody with less going hand than conductor Fuller. But in a moment he was on his feet, trying his limbs. No bones were broken. A mud daft was the full measure of his misfortune. Murphy was equally sound, the car was none the worse, with scarce a minute's delay they sprang to it, righted it, and with some strong tugging lifted it upon the track, with very few minutes delay they were away again, somewhat more cautiously than before, and sharply on the lookout for further gifts of broken rails from the runaways ahead, leaving the pair of pursuers to their seemingly hopeless task, we must return to the score of locomotive pirates. These men who had done such strange work at Big Shanty were by no means what they seemed. They were clad in the butternut gray and the slouch hats of the Confederacy, but their ordinary attire was the blue uniform of the Union Army. They were, in truth, a party of daring scouts, who had stealthily made their way south in disguise, their purpose being to steal a train, burn the bridges behind them as they fled, and thus make useless for a time the only railroad by which the Confederate authorities could send troops to Chattanooga then threatened by the Union forces under General Mitchell, they had been remarkably successful, as we have seen, at the beginning of their enterprise, making their way, by devious routes, to Marietta, they had gathered at that place, boarded a train, and started north, the rush of passengers and trainmen into the refreshment room at Big Shanty had been calculated upon, the presence of a Confederate camp at that out-of-the-way station had not been, It might have proved fatal to their enterprise but for the stolid stupidity of the sentinel, but that peril had been met and passed, they were safely away, exhilaration filled their souls, all was safe behind, all seemed safe ahead, true, there was one peril close at hand, beside the track ran that slender wire, a resting place, it seemed, for passing birds, in that outstretching wire their most imminent danger lurked, fast as they might go, it could flash the news of their exploit a thousand-fold faster. The flight of the lightning news-bearer must be stopped. The train was halted a mile or two from the town. The pole climbed. The wire cut. Danger from the source was at an end, halting long enough to tear up the rail to whose absence conductor fuller out his somersault. They sprang to their places again and the runaway train sped blithely on. Several times they stopped for wood and water. When any questions were asked they were answered by the companion of the engineer. James J. Andrews by name, a Union spy by profession, the originator of and leader in the staring enterprise, I am taking a train load of powder to General Beauregard, was his stereotyped answer, as he went to the closed box cars behind him, within one of which lay concealed the bulk of his confederates, for some time they went swimmingly on, without delay or difficulty, yet trouble was in the air, ill fortune awaiting them in front, pursuing them from behind, they had by the fatality of a lucky chance, chosen the wrong day for their work, yesterday they would have found a clear track, today the road ahead was blocked with trains, hurrying swiftly southward, at Kingston, 30 miles from Big Shanty, this trouble came upon them in a rush, a local train was to pass at that point, Andrews was well aware of this, and drew his train upon the siding to let it pass, expecting when it had gone to find the road clear to Chattanooga, the train came in on time halted, and on its last car was seen waving the red danger flag. The railroad signaled that another train was following close behind. Andrews looked at this with no friendly eyes. How comes it? He asked the conductor, somewhat sharply, that the road is blocked in this manner. When I have orders to take this powder to Beauregard without delay. Mitchell has taken Huntsville, answered the conductor. They say he is coming to Chattanooga. We are getting everything out of there as quickly as we can this looked serious, how many trains might there be in the rear, a badly blocked road meant ruin to their enterprise and possibly death to themselves, they waited with intense anxiety, each minute of delay seeming to stretch almost into an hour, the next train came, they watched it pass with hopeful eyes, ah, upon its rear floated that fatal red flag, the crimson emblem of death, as it seemed to them, the next train came, still the red flag, still hope deferred, danger coming near, an hour of frightful anxiety passed. It was torture to those upon the engine. It was agony to those in the box car, who knew nothing of the cause of this frightful delay, and to whom life itself must have seemed to have stopped. Andrews had to cast off every appearance of anxiety and to feign easy indifference. For the station people were showing somewhat too much curiosity about this train, whose crew were strangers, and concerning which the telegraph had sent them no advices. The practiced spy was full of resources, but their searching questions taxed him for satisfying answers. At length, after more than an hour's delay, the blockade was broken. A train passed destitute of the red flag. The relief was great. They had waited at that station like men with the hangman's rope upon their necks. Now the track to Chattanooga was clear and success seemed assured. The train began to move. It slowly gathered speed. Up went hope in the hearts of those upon the engine new life flowed in the veins of those